There. I had turned it off before. Um, well, welcome again. My name is Derek McCollum. I'm the pastor at Hope. If I haven't met you, I would love to meet you at some point today. If you're new here, we want to give you uh, a special welcome. We're very glad that you have joined us. If you're old here, you're also welcome. Uh, we're happy that you're here too. We are in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Hebrews, and it's, it's one of those books that, that we're going we're gonna to get through, but we're really not going to get through. It is rich and deep, and we really only have the time to kind of skim over the surface. And so we've actually, we have a few books that are study guides for you that can be helpful to read during the week so that you can dig in even deeper as we go through it uh, on Sundays. And I just want to set the table for you really quickly because the passage that we're going to look at this morning uh, is, is an interesting one. It's often called a warning passage. In fact, throughout the Bible and throughout the book of Hebrews, there are passages that really just kind of are like a warning sign that say, hey, there's danger here, be careful. And the warning passages in the Bible and in Hebrews can sometimes be confusing because if, you're, uh, if you've been around Christianity uh, for very long, hopefully you've heard the amazing truth that it's not what we do that gets us in, it's what God does. And so the converse is also true, is it's not what we do that kicks us out. When we, are, when we belong to Jesus, we belong to Jesus because what He has done for us, and we are secure. God is faithful. He is everlastingly faithful. At the same time, there are passages all throughout the Bible that say, don't abuse God's faithfulness. Don't go astray. Warning, don't go down this path. Think of it like you're living in a house. God has brought you inside the house. You live there. It's your home. It's your place. You belong, and you are sheltered and safe there. But there is a terrible storm outside, and there is brutal wind and rain and hail and lightning, and it's really dangerous if you go outside. You're safe in the house. You're never going to get kicked out. So don't leave. That's really the thrust of this passage this morning, is God is saying, I am so faithful Jesus is so much greater than everything else, and in light of that, hold tight to Him as He is held tight to you. So with that in mind, once you open up your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, we are in chapter 3 toward the end of it, and we're going to read a big, I'm going to read a big chunk of God's Word for us this morning, so follow along with me if you will in your Bibles or in the bulletin. Chapter 3, starting in verse 16. Uh, actually, I'm sorry, uh, starting at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be any evil in you in an unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion." For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, 
For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. We pray with me. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We're thankful for it even when it's hard. We're thankful for it even when it pierces to the bone and marrow. Lord, will you pierce our hearts today even so that we might also hear the healing good news of the gospel. Will you show us Jesus more clearly? Open our eyes and soften our hearts, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have, um, I have a couple of brothers, and uh, one of my brothers, actually both of my brothers ran cross-country uh, in, in high school. One of them was a really, really good cross-country runner. In fact, good enough that he earned a scholarship to, to run at the University of Texas. And I remember his senior year uh, when he was third in state uh, at the cross-country meet, the state cross-country meet, uh, being at that meet and watching really something pretty incredible happen. Uh, my brother ran great, and unfortunately for him, the one thing that I can remember the most about that meet, though, is actually something about a different runner. Uh, there was one runner, a great runner, ranked in the state all year, a guy who was actually from around the place where the meet was held and knew the course really well. And over the course of this run, he, he had started off so well. In fact, when he started and long into the race, I mean, he looked so strong, so smooth. He really looked like he was just going to kind of run away with it. And high school cross country, they run a 5K, which is 3.2 miles. And uh, 3.1 miles of this kid's race was amazing. But for some reason with just a few hundred yards left to go. He kind of steered off course. Even though he knew the course well, he just made a mistake. He steered off course, and by the time he had kind of corrected himself and come back, he had used all of the gas that was in the tank. It was like there was exactly this much gas in the tank to be used, and a, just a few hundred yards before the finish line, I mean, it just ran out, and he was done. And he stopped, he literally just stopped and fell to his knees. And uh, he was okay, he wasn't, he wasn't injured, but he had just totally run out of gas. And um, 
I mean, I felt really sorry for him until my brother passed him, and then I wasn't thinking about him as much anymore. But it's a good illustration, I think, that, uh, you know, we can start really strong and finish really poorly. It's possible to start strong and finish poorly, isn't it? And this is true, the Bible says this actually a, a, a lot, it says it over and over, is that it's possible to experience the grace and the mercy and the love of God and to somehow end with a heart that is hardened. That it's possible to experience God's love and grace and mercy and still somehow to have our hearts hardened. That's really much of what the writer of Hebrews is saying in this passage, is that you can start strong knowing God's love and His mercy, knowing His grace deeply, experiencing it fully, and still your heart can grow cold, it can grow hard. Maybe you heard it four times actually in this passage, the writer says, don't harden your hearts. And he's doing something pretty incredible, actually, in this. In fact, what you're listening to today is, um, is like a sermon inside a sermon inside a sermon inside a sermon. It's like those Russian nesting dolls, okay? So you're listening to me preach a sermon, and I'm preaching on the book of Hebrews, which really most scholars would say is a sermon written in letter form. And this sermon is really mostly about the exposition of Psalm 95, which you heard read earlier. And Psalm 95 is really, a, uh, is really a psalm that encapsulates the history of Israel in the Exodus generation. So we're going down and down and down into a smaller and smaller little category. So let me give you a little bit of background. Psalm 95 actually starts out really wonderfully, doesn't it? You've heard it a few times already in the service. Come and bow down before the Lord. He's your maker and your king. But there's a shift in that psalm where you start to shift back into a history and a warning history of Israel. It takes us back to the time of the Exodus, where God rescued His people out of Egypt. If you remember it all, if you're familiar with the story, in Exodus we hear of God's people in Egypt, and they're there, and they're growing numerous, but they are there actually as slaves. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the most powerful man in the world at the time, has his, you know, thumb on them, and he is forcing them into hard labor. They're making bricks without straw. Their life is not their own. They are under someone else's control. And God, in His mercy, in His love, in His faithfulness, rips them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. He brings plagues on them, gnats and frogs, and the Nile River turns to blood. Can you imagine the Nile River where you get your drinking water and the water that, that, that waters all of your crops and the place you go to bathe has turned into blood? And finally, the culmination of all these plagues, the firstborn of all of Israel dies. And in doing so, God takes His people out of the hand of Pharaoh. He leads them through the bottom of the Red Sea on dry land, parts the waters for them so that they walk through the middle of the sea with walls of water on each side of them. He brings them out into the desert, and when they are hungry, He feeds them miraculously. He creates a manna that just appears on the ground. It's this bread that they get to eat. And then when they complain about the manna, He brings them, uh, he brings them quail, meat to eat. But God's people, as is the human heart, tend to complain. They say, the bread, I mean, it's fine, but it needs a little salt. It's just a little bland, God. And the quail, I mean, it's great, you know, that there's meat and all, but it's the same thing every day, boring. 
And at some point, the outcry of God's people is literally this, take us back to Egypt where we can be slaves again because the food was a little bit better there. And then when God brings them through the desert, the wilderness, and He brings them up into the precipice of the place that He's going to give them, this beautiful land where there is wonderful food, where there are vineyards, where there is water, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, the Bible says. And they send out spies, and they go in, and they come back with this report. They said, okay, two things. Yes, it's awesome. There's great food. It's a fertile land. It's great. But the people are really tall, so probably we can't handle that. Can you imagine that? The Lord has just brought you out of slavery. He's just turned the Nile River to blood. He has just annihilated the greatest army in in the world at the time. And you come back and say, but these people are tall. I don't think God can handle that. They experienced the mercy, the love, the salvation of God. They were a part of the major salvation experience in the Old Testament. And they were in it. And still, their hearts grew hard. It's possible to experience God's love, mercy, His grace, His kindness, and still to have our hearts kind of seep into hardness. All right, let's go one nesting doll out here. We're looking at the book of Hebrews, written to a church in the first century, probably a church in Rome, most scholars would say, probably sometime in the mid-60s, Okay. So it's about 60 A.D. It's Rome. It's a fledgling church, kind of like ours. It's new because, well, every Christian church at the time was new. And, uh, and they were experiencing really a, a lot of the same things that we experience, a culture that's not always accepting of what the Bible says, a culture that's oftentimes at odds, actually, with the gospel. And it just so happened that in the mid-60s in Rome, there was a big fire. And at that time, of course, fires could just wipe out everything. They didn't have fire trucks and fire hydrants to put everything out. And so the fire actually, it really wiped out most of Rome. It was a huge deal. Many people died. Many buildings uh, were burned and destroyed. And Nero, the emperor of Rome, came up with this great plan. He said, you know who's responsible for the fire? The Christians. This young little splinter group of religion, they're the ones who are actually responsible for all of it. Let's blame it all on them. And so that's what he did. Nero came up with this plan to really blame the fire on the Christians, and he made it legal for everybody to persecute Christianity. So there was just kind of this free-for-all of persecution against Christianity. Now, if you're a Christian at the time, you really have three options. You can kind of retreat into the walls of your own culture and start to develop subcultures that protect you from everyone and stop engaging the world around you at all, just retreat to yourself. Or you can really just erase any kind of distinction between you and everybody else and make it look like you are just like everyone else and believe everything that everybody else believes because I'm either safe behind these walls or I'm safe hiding in plain sight because nobody really knows I'm a Christian. Or you can actually live out your faith in a very dangerous way, an exposed way. Now, what do you think the temptation was? By the way, the same temptations that we have in our culture, right? To retreat from culture, 
or to totally erase any kind of distinctions that the church has with the world, the same temptations that we always face. And this young church was faced with that very thing, and particularly, let's retreat back to Judaism because it's kind of a more well-thought-of religion at the time, and they're not being persecuted. And oh, by the way, things were kind of easy. We have this freedom in Christ now, and you know what? We used to have this list of rules where we could check off all the boxes and make ourselves feel pretty good, and that was a lot easier. So they're being tempted to actually go back to flee from Jesus, who the writer of Hebrews says over and over is greater than anything else in the world. They're being tempted to run away. They'd experienced the love and the mercy and the goodness and the grace of Christ, They had seen it, they had known it, yet their hearts were becoming hard. Their hearts were starting to ice over with hardness. It's possible to know the grace of Christ and still have your heart become hard. How about us? We're going with the big nesting doll now, right? Well, as you probably guessed and probably already realized, the same tendencies of the human heart 3,000 years ago and 2,000 years ago are the same tendencies here. We are also prone to move away from the Lord because we are scared. We are also prone to be those who know and understand the grace of Christ, yet somehow start to turn to other things and our hearts become hard. What does a hard heart look like? Let me just give you a, a, a few of the symptoms if we're diagnosing these things. A hard heart really starts with a growing self-sufficiency, a growing kind of understanding or assent to this idea that if it's going to happen, then it's really all up to me. I am self-sufficient. I'm the one who can do it. I'm the one who will take everything upon my shoulders. Now, of course, responsibility is a good thing. We should be responsible people. But this idea of self-sufficiency really means that I'm the one who is responsible for all things, including my own salvation, including my own flourishing, including my own happiness. All of this revolves around me. We live in a culture that celebrates that, don't we? We live in a culture really that says, if it is to be, then it's up to me. I am the master of my soul and the captain of my fate. That's, the, that's what we embrace as, as Americans, as Westerners, as Texans. We love those things. Oftentimes, this shows up the most uh, when you're hurt. If somebody has wounded you, what's the natural thing to do is to begin to retreat and to say, you know what, I'm going to focus on myself. I'll be the one who takes care of me. I'll be the one who isolates because I'm the only one I can trust. Simon and Garfunkel sang of this years ago. I'm a rock. I'm an island. And a rock feels no pain. And an island never cries. So the way that I keep myself from being hurt in the world is I become more self-sufficient. I become more isolated. The Bible actually says that that is an indication of a hardening heart. Here's another one. Is it a focus on what is exclusively present or an exclusive focus on what is present rather than an understanding of the future? And this can happen actually when times are good or they're bad. It oftentimes happens when things are kind of crumbling in on our lives, is that we have these blinders on that show us that the only thing that I need to look at is what's happening right now. And life is really hard right now. 
and things are going really poorly right now. And when I look at my own journals, I see only bad things. And when I turn on the television and I watch the news, I see only bad things. And so that's all that there is. And so we start to kind of turn into this cynicism that says, you know what, it's really just not worth engaging anymore. It's not worth giving any effort. It's not really worth doing anything because it's all really going to be bad anyway. And of course, we forget God is doing something in the world. We forget that God's story is actually much bigger than where we are right now. We forget that God is in the process of making all things new, he says. We forget the beautiful hope that we are a part of as belonging to Christ. And we look exclusively at what's in front of us. It can happen when things are going well too, right? We focus just on, you know, our best life now, and that's all that we care about. How about a third one? Uh, It is a dullness to the gospel. Another symptom of hard-heartedness. I don't know if you, like me, have ever been in church and sat in a sermon and heard the pastor say, Jesus has taken your sin. Jesus has actually died a horrific death. He has had his hands and his feet and his side pierced and his head crushed in with thorns And he is hung such that he would suffocate and die a slow and grueling death. And he's been beaten and whipped. And he's done so to take the punishment that you deserve. He's died for you. Maybe you've heard a pastor say, Jesus has actually given you his righteousness. He has taken your sin and given you his righteousness. And you now are clean or perfect as you stand before the Lord. Maybe you've been in church and heard a pastor say that God has taken your shame and you don't have to deal with that shame anymore, that he's released you from the bondage of sin and that the addictions and the repetitive sins that you deal with all the time, they no longer have sway over you, that he's freed you. Maybe you've heard a pastor talk about the new life that is in Christ, and maybe you've heard all of these things like I have, and you have thought Just two more months until football season. Or when am I going to be able to buy that car? Or I wonder if my son's arm is going to be ready for this game this week because it's a big one. Do you hear the irony in all of that? And again, friends, I'm with you. I've experienced it. But Jesus has died for us. And we are so focused on little things. Our hearts are dull to the best news we've ever heard. It's like the best news comes and just bounces off and doesn't soak in. Here's one more symptom. It is an intense and deep and pervasive fear of being known. It is the idea that if somebody really knew who I was, if I was somehow exposed in some way, they would all come, trump, uh, come tumbling down. Remember a few years ago when the Ashley Madison database was exposed and 38 million people freaked out because now the world and the people that I don't want to know who I am, they're going to know. Now I'm exposed. 
The technology that we live with actually allows for this so much more easily than in any other time in the history of the world. Because now I can actually go online and I can live a Facebook status update life where you're going to know all that you want to know about me. Well, really, it's all that I want to give you to know about me, right? I build my little virtual you know, presentation of myself, the projection of who I am. I, I send out filtered pictures on Instagram that, that make you think, oh, look at that old picture. Oh, wait, no, that was three hours ago. It's not really old. We actually literally can put filters on our lives. We live the Twitter update life. That's, here's the little snippet of just this amount of characters that lets you know who I am in exactly the way that I want you to know who I am. We project. And here's the really insidious thing, isn't it, is that we actually make it seem like we're being transparent and honest. The world knows everything about me. I'm an open book. No, you're exactly the book that, they, that you want them to know. And they're only reading the things that you want them to read. Because there is a deep fear that if we're really exposed, if people really knew who we were, if we were really found out, then we would really not be loved. See, that fear is an indication of a hardening of our hearts. It's possible, isn't it, for us to know the gospel, for us to experience and know the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus, and still for our hearts to become hard. I wonder if any of those symptoms you noticed in your own life, I noticed them in mine. So what's the answer for us? What's the answer? Well, here's the beautiful part of this passage, is that the answer, <laughs> listen to the irony here, the answer is in 11 through 13. See if you can pick it up. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. See, the answer is to rest in Jesus by being exposed by Jesus. To rest in Christ by coming to him and laying ourselves bare before him. The warning over and over and over is, do not harden your hearts. But the answer is, seek to find that rest. And come to find that rest actually through, the most, uh, through a way that we would never want, right? To opening ourselves to the sharp, double-edged piercing of God's Word, to open ourselves to the exposure of the light of the gospel, to open ourselves to the honesty of who we are, so that we might actually come to know His love in, in, a, in a way that we've never seen it before. See, when our hearts are hard, they're not like concrete. Concrete, uh, professionals will tell you, actually continues to harden over years. It just gets harder and harder and harder. And the only way that you can kind of soften concrete is to just break it apart into pieces. But that's not how our hearts function. Our hearts are much more like ice. And ice can get really hard. You can walk on a frozen lake. An iceberg will sink a ship. But if you put a piece of ice on the hearth by the fire, what's going to happen? 
it melts. That's what we're called to as believers, is to draw ourselves near the fire, the warmth of the gospel, so that the hardness of our hearts melts. To continually draw ourselves near to Jesus, to continually preach the gospel to ourselves, to continually have his word pierce us in ways that are painful, in ways that are exposing and scary, so that we can hear him say to us, I love you. I've died for you. You're mine. I saw, I saw an, an illustration of this this week that just blew me away. I, I spent this week um, with, with a national gathering. Our denomination gathers all of its pastors and many of the elders, the leaders of the local churches together to, to fellowship together, to worship together, and then to do business about what we believe and how we project those things to the world and how we deal with the culture around us. And there was one time in our time this week where we were talking about human sexuality. What does the Bible say about human sexuality? What is the Bible's ethic of these things? And how are we then to take that beautiful yet oftentimes frightening ethic of God's Word and present it before the world in a way that is both faithful and tender, that is true to God's Word yet, yet uh, pastoral and kind to the people around us? And during this discussion, one pastor came up and spoke before there's probably 2,000 people in the room. And he came up and he started to tell his own story. And he said, uh, he said this, he said, you know, when I was a boy, I realized at a pretty early age that, that I was attracted to men, to people of my own gender. And for years and years, I didn't know what to do with this. And, and I dealt simply with shame. And he said, that shame really kept me away from expressing those desires, but I held this weight of shame so heavy upon me. And then in college, he actually heard the gospel. He was converted. He became a Christian. He heard the wonderful news that Jesus actually lifts our shame, and that's what it did for him. That Jesus actually took his shame, and he said to him, I love you, and you're mine. And so then, out of, uh, out of uh, uh, deference to Jesus promoted by his love of Christ because what Jesus had done for him, he also kept away from those desires. He has lived his life faithfully, devoted to Christ, and because of that has lived a life of celibacy. And this is all worth celebrating. It's wonderful, actually, to see someone dealing faithfully with God's Word even when it's hard, but it was really hard to listen to him tell the rest of his story, which was this, though I have been faithful... And though God has always been faithful to me, it has been deeply, deeply painful. Jesus tells us to take up our cross and follow him. And this friend of mine was saying, you know what, I have borne that cross and it is wearing deep marks into my back. It is cutting into me in difficult ways. He said, I've never held hands with anyone. I've never felt the warmth of a romantic embrace. I've never like had a hug like that. I've never been able to say, you are mine and I am yours forever. I've never known that. I've never been able to experience family life and being a father and being a husband. And he said, you know, though I believe this is what Jesus has called me to, it's really, really hard. Now, 
we can have a discussion some other time about the mechanics of those things exactly. But what struck me is that this man was able to stand up in front of 2,000 of his peers and open himself up like that and let all of us look into the depth of his pain. How do you do that? How can you stand up in front of 2,000 people and say, this is the most painful and true part of me and you're all going to see it? Well, the way that he can do it is that he has done it a thousand, a million times before the Lord. He has opened himself up to Jesus and said, this is who I am. This is who I am without hiding. This is who I am in a way that hurts. This is who I am in a way that makes me exposed. This is who I am in a way that lets your word actually pierce me. And he has heard Jesus say to him, Greg, I love you. You're mine. I won't ever leave you. You belong to me. He was drawn close to the warmth of the gospel. It's changed him. I had a seminary past, uh, professor that would tell us when we would, we would come up upon passages like this that were really hard. He would say, you know, when you come up on a passage like this, don't run away from it. Don't try to explain it away. Don't go to all your theological categories and try to hide from it. He said, when it leans on you, let it lean. But this is also what he meant, is that when it leans on us, let it lean us into the arms of our Savior. Let it lean us into the beauty of the gospel. Let us come before the Lord, pierced by the sharpness of his word, exposed by the light of the gospel, and healed by that warmth. That's what he calls us to this morning. Let's pray. Lord, these are, uh, these are hard things. They're hard words to hear, even to, to be reminded that there is the possibility of knowing your grace and still hardening our hearts. I don't want that for me. I don't want that for us. And so, Lord, we simply ask that you would soften us. And we confess that softening usually takes pain. Lord, we're ready for it. <laughs> Soften us, bring us near to the warmth of the gospel so that we might know the depth of your love more fully. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.